Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis. And today's guest is Katie Crane. Katie Crane has a background in archaeology and linguistics and is now completing her master's in public folklore at Memorial's University Department of Folklore. She is the museum coordinator of the Logie Bay Middle Cove Outer Cove Museum. And we're going to talk about fairies and legend tripping and conferences and all kinds of fun stuff. Katie, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Thanks for coming in. Uh, so you're starting up now very soon uh, with Logie Bay Middle Cove Outer Cove uh, again. For your, this is your second summer at the museum? This is my second summer. I start again on Monday. Right. Well, uh, they're lucky to have you, I think. She's rolling her eyes. Uh, <laughs> it's true. Um, okay, so we want to talk a little bit about... Uh, this paper that you had written, and this was a paper that you had written for a course at Memorial, but then you went over the pond, uh, across the seas, uh, to the east to, uh, present at this conference. So tell me a little bit about the research that you were doing and, and what we're, what we're going to chat about today. Okay. So it was a paper that I researched for actually an undergrad class, um, in folk life. And it was about fairy lore, uh, escape rooms, and legend tripping yep. and the commodification of belief. Okay, so let's let's start with uh, legend tripping because I know that this is a this is a phrase that that probably folklorists might know, but maybe people outside of the discipline aren't overly familiar with. So, what is what is legend tripping? Legend tripping is when you hear a legend and you want to experience for your, it for yourself. So you go to the place that the legend is said to have occurred and you sometimes do specific things or have specific rituals that are associated with the legend and you tell the legend while you're at the site and you're hoping to experience whatever happened in the story while doing all those things. Right. And it, it depends on the site. It depends on the legend. So you and I went went hunting for pirate treasure. We did. Sort of. <laughs> sort of. We went to, we went to Turk's Gut, uh, which has a, cause you, this is for a s other piece of research. Turk's Gut, Marysvale has this pirate legend, and you were interested in pirate legends, so we went out and we got water, magical water from the, uh, the Turkish spring, uh, there. So is that, is that legend tripping? I would call that legend tripping. <laughs> we did talk about the story, and yeah. we. Buried treasure, and. Talked about buried treasure, and we wandered the community, and we didn't really go hunting for the treasure <clears throat> because it was January. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, we did collect the water, which I think healed my migraines. So. Really? Do you think so? I do, I do, but I think it was probably because I was dehydrated. You just needed a drink of water, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, um, if anyone's out in the Conception Bay North uh, area, that's a that's a great little spot. Like just follow the road down to the bottom of of Marysvale uh, towards the harbor, and and you'll pass by the the Turk's Gut Heritage House there, which is open during the summers. You can go in and have um, bacon and eggs with um, Bride Power, and uh, and and she'll tell you the story of the of the the Turkish pirate, and and you can stop and have a, a drink at the legendary spring there. Um, so you you've done a little bit of this yourself you you kind of are interested in in hunting out legends and things like that so the the paper that you wrote this idea of legend tripping um you were looking specifically at fairy lore and fairy traditions so what was your what was your personal interest in that I just find fairies really cool um I stumbled upon Barbara Rietti's yeah. uh book Strange Terrain uh, when I was working at the heritage shops because we used to sell it and I sat down and I read it 
on a shift when it was very slow. <laughs> we won't tell the Historic <laughs> Sites Association that. Yeah. Um, and it's just fascinated me. The I don't know, just the way that fairies and uh, local legends like that kind of become hidden within the narrative of communities, but are still present, even if people aren't practicing the beliefs anymore. Right. So uh, this research that you had done had focused specifically on Escape Quest. So Escape Quest is an escape room that we have here in St. John's. And again, so people maybe aren't familiar with the concept of escape rooms. What What is an escape room? An escape room is a room or a series of rooms um, in which the goal is to escape or to solve some sort of uh, puzzle like uh, stopping a bomb or opening a safe. Um, and you do this through a series of smaller puzzles that open doors, unlock chests, and eventually lead to the solving of the ultimate puzzle, which is to escape the room. Or escape the room, yeah. yeah. And these have become incredibly popular. How, how old are escape rooms? Not very. Uh, they've started popping up within the past decade. And um, they started as point-and-click adventure video games. And then... Um, kind of came into, like, out of the virtual world and into the real world, um, starting in Japan and then kind of spreading across the world. Right. And I think, you know, there was an episode of uh, Big Bang Theory, I think, that kind of made them kind of explode in popularity a bit in North America. And, uh, and yeah, and they're popped up everywhere now. You can go pretty much anywhere in kind of North America. Any major city has its own escape room. The escape room here, Escape Quest, which is a local company, uh, they, they do a really good job of incorporating local history and folklore into their into their escape rooms. Yeah, their mandate is to incorporate Newfoundland history, pop culture, and folklore into all the settings of their rooms. So they have ones that are variations on your kind of generic escape room theme. So they have the escape the prison concept, but they've done it through the story of the 1892 Great Fire. Yeah, I've done that one, yeah. Um, And they also have a zombie one. Um, It was called Undead on Duckworth, and now it's the sequel, Patient 709. And that's set in Newfoundland on Duckworth Street, but with your kind of generic zombie narrative. But what made the Taken by the Fairies escape room different is that it's very centralized in Newfoundland folklore, um, concepts that are pretty unique from all their rooms. It, it, it's completely different in the theme. Um, and I, I've done a little bit of research on other escape rooms and I and escape room businesses, and I haven't found one that's quite the same. They've all kind of done like a supernatural theme, but nothing like the fairy room. Right. So the the fairy room that they have is based um, loosely on uh, on Newfoundland folklore, but also kind of specifically on a family story that the the one of the owners uh, ha- has uh, kind of taken and then reworked uh, to be the, the I don't want to give stuff away but kind of the plot I guess of the of the story do, do you want to talk a little bit about that that particular legend sure um, it's a story that actually comes from um, one of the owners uh, his wife's grandmother or great-grandmother and it's the story of um, an older woman who lived in a community and she would always go out berry picking, but she would always go out by herself. And everybody would kind of warned her against doing that because of the fairies of course. in the woods. And she would always go out 
berry picking in these bright red boots and she would do it despite all the warnings and one day she went out and she was never seen again and they searched for her for days and days and days but uh you know they they, ne- they never found her and then 10 years later after they'd kind of given up on finding her someone went out to an area that was like a little hill in the middle of this empty field and on the top of the hill they found a circle of stones and it was a place that had been searched before but suddenly 10 years later in the middle of the circle of stones were her bright red boots i love it <laughs> <laughs> i love it um and so that is part of they've they've utilized some of those motifs in in the escape room um so what do you, what do you make of that as a folklorist that kind of uh turning folklore into a business i love it um because I'm studying public folklore, I like seeing how folklore can be put to use for the community. And one of those aspects is finding a way to, to help it be an economical resource for the community. Right. So you had this research uh, completed and had written this paper, which did this, was this, did this win you an award? It did. <laughs> yes, I thought so. The Mary A. Griffith <clears throat> Memorial Award for Folklore Field Resort. Congratulations, Research. yes. Uh, so now, and then you, you took this paper and then you applied to this fantabulous sounding conference uh, in the UK. So what was, the, what was the title of the conference? It was the Thrill of the Dark, Heritages of Fear, Fascination, and Fantasy. Awesome. So uh, off you go to Birmingham. Is that where it was? Yeah. Yes. So tell me about that. What was that like? Uh, it was amazing. And I could have stayed there forever. Uh <laughs> I did a lot of fun things, um, but I really just enjoyed the conference. Like, they put together such a fascinating group of people that were interested in dark tourism and alternative culture. Um, there were talks on Ghosts in the Gothic and Jack the Ripper and bone chapels and um, public engagement with historic cemeteries, uh, prison tourism all sorts of things. And what did what did people think of your uh, of your fairy escape room story? I think it went over very well. Um, it's my very first conference ever presenting at, so I was really nervous. And um, afterwards, one of the organizers of the conference came up and sought me out and told me that he loved my talk. That's and great. I had a couple of people suggest that I should be writing a <laughs> PhD. So well. That's well. We'll have to have another chat about that. <laughs> now, um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, about this this conference was uh, there was a f- what sounds to me like a very cool museum, kind of that was incorporated into the conference that I know you you went to. So tell us tell us a little bit about that. Lay the lay the stage for us. Sure. So one of the the conference presentations was by um, Josie Wall, who was from the uh, Newman Brothers Coffin Works Museum. And that one was one of my favorite talks. Um, but it was about this museum that we did end up visiting as part of the conference. Um, and they made the coffin furniture, which is all the metal pieces on a coffin, um, from the 1800s to 1999 when they closed. And um, they were probably the most... I don't know if popular is the word, but they, they were definitely the most sought after um, maker of coffin furniture in England. Um, and they also have the distinction of making the coffin 
furniture for most of the royal family um, oh. and several other notable figure, figures like uh, Winston Churchill. Okay. So we're talking about all the little the little uh, decorations and handles and, and that kind of stuff. And I know that they've preserved a lot of the equipment uh, and whatnot, that the, sh- the, the factory is as it was when it, when it shut down? Yes. When they closed in 1999, the woman who owned it at the time donated everything inside as a museum and kind of said, you're not allowed to take anything out of it. So everything is left as if people just like left for the end of the day and they'd be back tomorrow, which was a really cool experience to walk into. Yeah. Um, and the, I know there's some video of some of the equipment because it is, it's these giant, very fabulous Victorian steampunky uh, kind of presses and, and they were working while you were while you were there. Yeah. Yeah. They did a demonstration for us because they um, press their own little metal coffin plates that they sell in their gift shop, which I cleared them out of when I was there. <laughs> um, yeah, so they, they would um, melt, I think it was silver, in um, in this giant furnace, and then they would pour it into the molds that were carved out of steel by hand and could take up to six weeks to uh, carve. And they had to be done in reverse, so any writing had to be done mirrored. Um, and then the, the silver would kind of make a... a Form that they would then press into the plates. And um, they had four smaller presses and one gigantic press for the really big ornate pieces. And then each press could have uh, different molds put into it, and then they could switch them out as the silver got softer over time and unable to work with it, and then they would just switch it out for a new design. Hmm. And they had shelves full of these molds, and some of them were super intricate, and I can't imagine carving one of those for six weeks and getting to the very last detail, and then your hand slipping and messing everything up, and then what do you do? <laughs> yeah. It's it's fascinating because I know here in Newfoundland, uh, many Many uh, communities would would make their own coffins, and you could you could go to shops and buy the fittings. You could buy the furniture, uh, the hardware for the for the the coffins. I know <clears throat> years ago, talking to uh, Mr. Quinton uh, out in Redcliffe, there the the, the Redcliffe um, uh, community had a shop there that the Quintons had run for I think for generations, and and one of the things that they sold was coffin hardware, and I have no idea where it came from, but like many products, I suspect it was imported from the United Kingdom. He had a great story about his I think it was his father or his grandfather at one point um, heard noises in the shop. Like the sound of someone kind of banging the coffin boards together and whatnot, and uh, he said, "Right, I need to go make a, a coffin because there was nobody in the in the shop." And he went out, and sure enough, no one there built the coffin, put all the hardware on it, and just kind of waited. And the next day, uh, a man from the next community overcame and said, "You know, so and so has died, and I've come to see if I could get a coffin made." And he said, "Oh, I made it. I made it last night." <laughs> um, fabulous little, uh, I guess, kind of a token kind of story. Um, the the museum that you're talking about, uh, the Newman Brothers Coffin Works, it, I, I, one of the things that I, I remember you talking about or, or posting something about was how they had kind of shifted in their presentation uh, from um, kind of being about, you know, coffins and coffin works to kind of being about industrial heritage. Yeah, they, they present themselves as a museum about 
death, but not a museum of death. So it's about the life of the workers and the job that they did, and that happened to relate to death and dying. But it's not a morbid presentation. It's very much how this uh, this organization, this office, was run as the one of the pieces of the industrial heart of Birmingham. Yeah. Um, and. I, I really liked the presentation because you go in and you see coffins and you see, um, you know, religious symbolism, but it's from all sorts of different religions. They had Sikh symbols and they had, um, you know, Protestant and Catholic versions of coffin plates. And it was, it was for the community. It wasn't a particular slant. It was, we were representing everyone everyone dies and everyone needed to be honored in death. And these were the people who were working at doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not really legend tripping as such, but it is that kind of dark tourism or, you know, and I, and I think that that is something that is maybe growing a little bit. I think people are fascinated as someone who kind of works in the dark tourism industry. Sometimes, you know, I, I see an endless kind of stream of tourists every summer who are interested in, local ghost stories or, or cemetery tours and things like that. There were there were several, you said, several uh, sessions on cemeteries? I went to all of them. <laughs> um, yeah, so there was, there was people from um, a handful of different uh, British cemeteries. Um, there was uh, someone representing uh, Arnest Vale, which I believe is in Bristol, and Abney Park, and they were talking about... Um, public engagement and how these were cemeteries that were set up to be park cemeteries in the Victorian area. So they were they were meant to be used not just by the dead in the morning, but by people just in their everyday lives. They were they were parks, but they were also cemeteries. They were places of congregation. People would go and have picnics. And that kind of fell out of use over time as people started to think of death as this hidden aspect of life that we don't talk about and that is very sad and we have to treat in this very somber and and kind of isolated way. Yeah. And so they're trying to bring it back to the original intention of these cemeteries. Um, so they're places that they're holding seminars and they're holding concerts and they're um, holding movie nights, but they're 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 doing it in a way that respects both the, the dead and the living. I, I was reading an article, a newspaper article fairly recently about uh, a cemetery in the United States that for, for 15 years, they just had their 15th annual uh, picnic. They, they have um, a, a picnic annually and people dress in, you know, Edwardian, Victorian costume and they go and they have this public picnic at, at the cemetery. And it is, it is a fundraiser for the restoration, uh, the continued restoration. I think they call it the, the RIP um, picnic and the RIP is, um, something like restoration in perpetuity or something like that. So it's a, it, it, the, it is this idea that, you know, that you use the site to generate funds to benefit the site, which I think is really, uh, really important. I, 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 th- I don't think people recognize sometimes how much it costs to maintain these historic sites. They did talk about that in the, the presentations as well, because they have a lot of people are saying, well, why are you holding a movie night that's disrespectful? Um, Especially if it's a movie that, you know, I can go get for free on Netflix. And it's all about connecting with people and letting them know that you think this is an important part of your community, but it costs money 
to upkeep this and to make sure that this doesn't fall into disrepair. And and if you want to still visit it, we need to keep it here. And that's what it takes. So I I wanted to come back uh, to Newfoundland kind of towards the end of our interview here. And I I wanted to talk about one of the other little stories that I know you you, uh, have been researching and writing about. And this is a story that has a family connection for you. This this story from Winterton about – we talked about the the pirate treasure in Turk's gut. But there's also this fabulous story uh, which kind of comes from your grandfather uh, from Winterton. Yes. Yes. So tell me that. Tell me that story. Okay. So my grandfather, for as long as I can remember, told me the story of the pirate treasure in the Sugarloaf Mountain in Winterton. And I think we need to lay some context here. Your your grandfather, Otto Tucker. Otto Tucker, very well known educator and and uh, uh, supporter of local history. Yeah. Um. So he was given the lock by. This man, who was older than him, who said that it was off this chest, which was eventually, the chest was eventually donated to the Winterton Museum, um, like the community museum inside the Wooden Boat Museum. Um, And the story attached to that is that this man and his friend, um, when they were younger, had always heard that there was a cave on the water, like the ocean-facing side of the Sugarloaf Mountain, which is, I don't know, fairly high. I've never tried to hike it, though I plan to. Another legend trip. Um, But it was only accessible from the water because there there was an overhang um, that made it so you couldn't climb down from the top. And they'd always been talking about going to see what was inside uh, because there was always rumors that there was pirate treasure there. I guess caves and pirate treasure just kind of go together um so they were going off to war and uh they decided this is it this is our time we're gonna go find out what's inside so they they sailed out and apparently they stole the boat that they used (laughs) to to, to sail out and they they in true pirate fashion yeah and they uh they climbed up the side of the mountain and they went inside and they said they didn't get very far inside before they saw this chest. And they figured, well, there is pirate treasure and we're going to take it and we're going to be rich. And they attached ropes to the side of the, the chest and they lowered it down into the boat and then they got to the beach and they opened it up and there were papers inside. Just papers. And they couldn't read. So they burned the papers <laughs> and they stripped the box of all the valuable metal that they could find on it. And they sold it for probably not nearly as much as whatever those papers said. Yeah. And the reason that I've been told that they didn't take the papers for anyone else to see is that they had stolen the boat and they didn't want to get in trouble. Right. And we will never know <laughs> what was on those papers. My dad has his theories. Other people have theories. So what what are your father's theories on the papers? My dad's theories is that they were deeds right. of some sort. And when Deberville was in the area, they were hidden for safekeeping. Okay. I'm not entirely sure what the deeds would be <laughs> for or why they were hiding them from Deberville. Now, does this – the fact that the box is empty, uh, do you think that that just adds to the allure of the story? The fact that we will never actually know – yeah. That, that there, there is kind of this built-in element of mystery. Oh, yeah. That's, I think, the most important part of the story. Because if they had found treasure, great. 
that's cool, but it ends there. But if there's nothing inside that can be used or there's no concrete proof, you always have this speculation which keeps the story going. I mean, I don't know when this story is supposed to be ha have happened. I think it was First World War. Um, so the fact that it's persisted, you know, this long, that that wouldn't have happened if it was just treasure. So what, what do you think these kinds of legends mean for communities? Um, these kinds of legends, they they create local history. Um, and they, they, they give an identity to communities that they can use to make themselves unique and to make themselves stand out and they can market it as a as a touristic experience. Um, some communities have done this in different ways. Winterton just kind of shows the the chest and talks about it in their museum, but places like um, Carboneer have used uh, pirate legends in different ways. Turkscut, Mary's Vale has used pirate legends in different ways. And they they kind of put the community on the map and give themselves an identity and something to say that this is us, this is where we come from, and this is what we belong to. Yeah, yeah. When you when you come into Carboneer, there are signs for that point you towards the grave of the legendary uh, Sheila Nagira Pike, who may or may not be real, or and it may or may not be her grave. <laughs> you know, um, so it is interesting, and it and it is something that they have. Uh, over the decades, really, in Carboneer, you know, kind of used as uh, as part of their tourism promotion. Harbor Grace, you know, with the Peter Easton pirate uh, story as well. That's something that they have capitalized on in the past. They used to have pirate days in in Harbor Grace. Yeah, Are, is there a is there a spot where you would like to go legend tripping that you haven't been yet? Um. Yeah, I mean, I do want to go to the Sugarloaf because yeah. I haven't actually been up there. And I remember telling when I was one of my friends when I was in like high school about this story, and he was like, "I'm going to learn to rock climb, and we're <laughs> going to do this." And obviously, that never happened. But it's a it's a story that's belonged to my family for a long time. That my father was always saying to himself, I'll go up the sugar, the sugar loaf and I will see what's going on. And he never did. So I'm thinking uh, this is something I definitely have to do. Now, if people have a, a local pirate legend or know where, where treasure is buried, we would love to hear from you. You can you can get in touch with us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. You, uh, you can find Katie on Twitter. Uh, what's your Twitter handle? Newfie Riot Girl. And, and or just do a search for Katie Crane. You know, it'll probably <laughs> pop it up. Um, great. And if people want some information on Logie Bay Middle Cove Outer Cove Museum, if they want to come visit you this summer, where can they go for information on that? Uh, we're on Facebook and Twitter, Instagram, and we have a blog. And it's all under LBMCOC Museum. Okay. Logie Bay Middle Cove Outer Cove Museum. All right, Katie, uh, thank you very much. Do you have anything kind of planned for the summer for the museum? Any any big ideas? Uh, we're working on an exhibit for the concert crowd. Um, it was their 50th anniversary last year, so we're going to put a, together an exhibit with some of the things that they donated after their 50th anniversary celebrations. And we always do a great array of activities for everyone, um, people of all ages, kids, organizations, and um 
Also, adult uh, skill development. and. You and I were talking about maybe doing uh, another cemetery. We did a cemetery transcription bee uh, yes. last year in Logie Bay, Middle Cove, Outer Coast. So maybe we'll do that again. So stay tuned. Uh, Katie, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.